1902, the American public's fascination with dinosaurs had hit a fever pitch. The sensational and scandalous bone wars had come to a close with the recent passing of Edward Drinker Cope and O.C. Marsh, but the bone rush they'd unleashed was in full swing. Paleontologist Barnum Brown, named for the famous circus showman P.T. Barnum, had set out to make a name for himself while on a fossil hunting excursion to Montana's Hell Creek Formation for the American Museum of Natural History. Much like Marsh and Cope before him, Brown aimed to collect as many dinosaur specimens as he could, as quickly and ostentatiously as possible. Delicacy and caution, Brown's team had decided, were for the birds. As demonstrated in the opening of Jurassic Park, there would be no careful chiseling or brushing the rock to preserve the integrity of the fossil skeletons inside. Brown's style was far more explosive, employing dynamite to blast cliffs apart with a force that would have given Dr. Alan Grant an aneurysm. Then, he and his men poured through the rubble for whatever seemed like it might earn them the most glory. Little did he know, he was about to score a trophy befitting a king. There, in the earth, lay the remains of an animal 40 feet long and 22 feet tall. The bones took 16 teams of men to carry back to the railroad, the skull alone weighing 4,000 pounds. Brown christened the creature Tyrannosaurus rex. For many of us, the infamous tyrant lizard is probably the first thing to pop into our heads when we hear the word dinosaur. But is Tyrannosaurus the only contender for King of the Dinosaurs? After all, its reign came at the end of an era. It was the last monstrous sovereign of dinosaur kind. Which begs the question, if there were other equally fearsome predators before it, how did Tyrannosaurus come to wear the crown? In its time, and in ours. I'm Emery Coolcats. This is the Museum of Natural Mystery. If you've ever been to the American Museum of Natural History in New York and seen the Tyrannosaurus skeleton on display there, or the skull still embedded in stone, those were Barnum Brown's finds. The Tyrant King stands tall and proud as centerpiece of the museum's collection. It's surrounded by all manner of fascinating peers and predecessors, but somehow the Tyrannosaurus always steals the spotlight. And that's really the focus of today's show. We've discovered so many exciting dinosaurs in the 110 years since Tyrannosaurus first graced museums. There are, of course, the clever, 
pack-hunting velociraptors of China, the giant carnivores like the sail-finned spinosaurids, which length and height-wise reached greater measurements than the T-Rex, the 39-foot Siach Micarorum, a large North American predator which would have hunted Tyrannosaurus's direct ancestors, and that's before we even get into herbivores. With all these strange new beasts in our dinosaur codex, Tyrannosaurus ought to feel like old news, but it hasn't faded into the background. Why not? What makes it so special? To answer that question, we need to understand what sets T-Rex apart in the first place. We have to unravel the history of its evolution and the fires that forged it. Which means we have to go back. Way back. Not just to its discovery, but to the dawn of the dinosaurs. Because the dreadful Tyrannosaurus came from humble beginnings. Let's wind the clock back. 201 million years to the close of the Triassic. Mother Nature had just about put the finishing touches on the blueprint for her next great experiment. Theropods, the archetypal dinosaurs. Two legs, two long arms with clawed hands, long tails, sharp teeth. Theropods were small, but they were brimming with promise because their design showed great potential for customization. The theropods had a lot of natural predators, but by sheer circumstance, a mysterious extinction happened to decimate all of the animals that wanted to eat them, allowing these primitive dinosaurs to expand into a vast array of empty niches. These underdogs found themselves at the top of the food chain by default, and the power struggle that ensued kicked off an arms race that would span the next 135 million years. The rise of the dinosaurs sparked the Jurassic. Herbivores grew to truly massive sizes. It was the time of the sauropods. The 75-foot-long Apatosaurus, 90-foot-long Diplodocus, and 85-foot-long, 30-foot-tall Brachiosaurus all came up during this period. Not all herbivores got quite so large, of course, but some of them did get pointier, like the plated Stegosaurus with its Thagomizer, the kind of silly name for that famous four-pronged spike tail. Predatory theropods diversified too, though. Some, like the Carcharodontosaurids, grew large enough to rival Tyrannosaurus in size. Others developed serrated teeth and claws and adopted new tactics like the pack-hunting allosaurs. If you've ever seen wildlife footage of lions working together to bring down a buffalo, watching these strategists work would have been kind of like that, except imagine that each lion is 15 feet tall and 30 feet long, and the buffalo is three times bigger than the lions. Then, on the lower end of the totem, still for the most part creeping around like their ancestors did, were the coelurosaurs. Scientists are constantly updating this taxa, but from what we can tell, this subgroup of theropods split into the raptors, the ostrich-mimic dinosaurs like Gallimimus, and the tyrannosaurs. 
The earliest ancestors of the T-Rex were shifty pipsqueaks known as the Tyrannosauroids. The oldest of these that we know of, Guanlong Wukaiai, dates back to the mid to late Jurassic, 160 million years ago, and was a far cry from the Tyrant King. Hailing from China, Guanlong was about the size of a large dog, with a slender frame, long arms, and three-fingered hands. Unlike its famous descendants, it had a long, thin neck and a narrow snout, but the makings of royalty were present even at the start, because Guanlong sported a ridged crest running up the length of its head, earning it a name meaning crowned dragon. Small and flashy was kind of the ebb and flow for the Tyrannosauroids for the rest of the Jurassic. Not a lot of killing power, but plenty of accessorizing. For example, a later relative on the timeline, Dilong Paradoxus, was smaller in size, but had a covering of proto-feathers. Fittingly, its name means Emperor Dragon. At this point in history, the killing strategy for most large theropod predators was to cut. Dinosaurs like Allosaurus and the Carcharodontosaurs had claws and teeth built for slicing into prey, inflicting deep wounds that, if not immediately effective, might cause escaped prey to bleed out and die from shock. We see similar strategies in predators of the present day. African wild dogs, for example, often rely on each member of the pack inflicting rips and bites on prey animals like impala or buffalo, collectively causing grievous injury that overwhelms the animal. It's an effective approach when your target is several times your size, like the sauropods would have been. The bulk and power of the tyrannosaurs was a feature unique to their kind, but until the tyrannosauroids developed those traits, they stood no chance of bringing down large prey or competing with the bigger, dagger-clad predators of the Jurassic and majority of the Cretaceous. So, what changed? If the tyrannosauroids were such hopeless weenies, how did they ever become fit to rule? Well, about 95 million years ago, in yet another of the great mysteries of paleontology, the sauropods of present-day North America and Europe all mysteriously immigrated south. A few trace and specimen fossils tell us there were some stragglers and at least one species made its way back, but for the most part, the sauropods up and moved to South America during the late Jurassic and the Cretaceous. One theory suggests that the sauropods didn't actually leave altogether, but that they just preferred inland environments. Coastal areas are great for preserving fossils, but rising sea levels during the Cretaceous submerged habitats near the sea. The theory proposes that sauropod remains are simply not preserved during this time because the water drove them to inland spots less conducive to fossilization. A more likely scenario, however, is that flowers kicked the sauropods out. Flowering plants developed during the Cretaceous, competing for space with the taller plant life that sauropods relied on, making treetop grazing more difficult and favoring herbivores suited to these new food sources. Whatever the cause, 
the sauropods cleared out of their usual haunts. Then, the large, hungry, blade-wielding theropods followed the food supply, leaving Tyrannosauroid country behind. I mentioned rising waters a moment ago. That part wasn't theory. In the late Jurassic and Cretaceous, North America contained a sizable inland sea called the Western Interior Seaway. Throughout the Cretaceous, this body of water grew so expansively that it ultimately bisected North America down the middle, connecting the Gulf of Mexico to the Arctic waters north of Canada. Everything from about what today would be the Rocky Mountains west was cut off, forming the island continent of Laramidia, and Central America was reduced to a series of islands. The sauropods and large carnivores that had gone south had no way of returning, clearing a path to the crown. But Rome wasn't built in a day. It wasn't just encroaching sea levels that changed the landscape of Cretaceous North America. If Tyrannosauroids were poised to become the new kings of the dinosaurs, those flowering plants were taking the foliage world by storm. Flowers and grass are so ingrained into our ideas about nature that we assume them to be timeless, but flowers didn't make their debut until the age of the dinosaurs was about three quarters of the way over, and no dinosaur ever ate grass. The first grasses don't appear in the fossil record until about 5 to 10 million years after the dinosaurs had already gone extinct. Up until this point, it was mostly trees and fern-like plants, so you can imagine that such novel concepts as pollens and fruits and seed dispersal were revolutionary to the way that insects and flying critters like early birds conducted business. The success of these systems allowed flowering plants to explode in diversity, giving the smaller herbivores that stuck close to the ground and the predators that liked to eat them a chance to assume the niches left behind by the tree-browsing, earth-trampling sauropods and the apex carnivores. Much like at the start of the Jurassic, herbivores got bigger and more creative with their defenses. They armed up with spikes and hammers that put Stegosaurus's Thagomizer to shame. Here we got the dome-headed Pachycephalosaurus, the horned dinosaurs like Triceratops, and armored dinosaurs like Ankylosaurus with its massive club tail. One good shot from any of these weapons could put even the largest of theropod carnivores out of commission for good. It no longer paid for predators to start a knife fight with these plant-eating hombres and hope, shock, and exhaustion finished the job. Any misstep, even around a wounded victim, could mean impalement or maybe a broken leg, which could easily be a death blow when you only have two to stand on. No, better to fight fire with fire, to develop a killing method that crushes, that rips, that inflicts as much trauma as possible in one go, so you spend as little time as possible around those spears and clubs. This is where the Tyrannosauroids became the actual Tyrannosaurs. 
Over the course of the Cretaceous, the Tyrannosaur line honed its own weaponry. They hulked out, growing large enough that their sheer mass, if placed over prey, could easily pin just about any foe, especially with the help of those so often mocked little arms. If you've always wondered what the deal is with those, you aren't alone. If Tyrannosaurus rex is supposed to be what Peak looks like, what happened? Did it just skip arm day for tens of millions of years? A theropod walks on two legs, which takes balance. As organisms that also do all our walking on two legs, we humans are uniquely qualified to understand that plight. If you're too weighed down in any direction, you'll topple over, a problem that front-heavy dinosaurs solved by using their long, thick tails to counter their heads, abdomens, and arms. But for Tyrannosaurus, the reduction in the size of the arms may have allowed their bodies to redistribute that front mass to other areas and still maintain balance. In this case, their skulls got larger as they evolved increased muscle in their necks and jaws. The end result was a bite force unparalleled by any other animal in nature, designed to utterly shatter anything caught in the maw. But if that first blow didn't kill, there was still a mouth full of banana-sized, pike-like teeth designed not to cut through, but to stick in and pull, tearing out large hunks of flesh. And contrary to popular belief, it's not as though those arms were vestigial. Sure, they were proportionately small for a tyrannosaur size, but they were still about three feet long on average. It's probably about as long as your arm, so imagine in the reverse that you had the proportional musculature of a tyrannosaur. You'd probably have biceps like cantaloupes and likely could throttle someone pretty good if you needed to, or could at least hold them in place. Tyrannosaurs were no different. With all that weight and power behind them, those silly-looking arms could easily grapple prey, making way for the jaws to do some major damage. Tyrannosaurus rex was the culmination of all this streamlining, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. I mentioned earlier that there are large carnivores longer or taller than Tyrannosaurus, but Tyrannosaurus would have had more muscle than these other theropods, weighing in at roughly 14 metric tons. Since animal size is measured in mass, Tyrannosaurus rex holds the title of largest land predator that ever lived. But it wasn't just about being the biggest. Tyrannosaurus rex was equipped with a number of adaptations to make it a more perfect killing machine, many of which dispel common misconceptions perpetuated by popular media. One of the biggest is probably the notion that T-Rex's vision is based on movement, as seen in Jurassic Park. In the novel, that's a side effect of having had to fill gaps in the animal's genetic material by using frog DNA, something the film doesn't really make clear. The actual T-Rex had binocular vision and could likely see and smell as well as or better than most modern birds of prey. There's some debate as to whether the T-Rex was too massive to be able to run, but it was 
a thick boy. Like its neck, jaws, and baby arms, T-Rex's hindquarters were incredibly powerful and muscular, and its feet indicate adaptations to withstand the pressures of rapid movement. It was probably also a quick boy. Current figures estimate the T-Rex could reach speeds of 20 to 25 miles per hour, pretty well short of Jurassic Park's 32 miles per hour, but likely still quick enough to catch a hadrosaur or two. Popular media also tends to depict T-Rex with its teeth visibly hanging over its lower jaw. However, paleontologists have recently learned that T-Rex teeth contained enamel, which would have strengthened them for all that tearing and pulling. Enamel teeth require a maintained wetness of the mouth or they begin to rot. A T-Rex would have needed to keep its teeth inside its mouth to prevent decay, which means it probably had lips to cover up those foot-long chompers. Not for smooching, mind you, more like a Komodo dragon, to reference a living reptile with lips. I mentioned earlier that Tyrannosaurus rex's ancestor, the dog-sized Dilong, had a coating of proto-feathers. Some fossil specimens from large tyrannosaurs, like the 25-foot Eutyrannus, also indicate the presence of feathers, leading scientists to believe that T. rex might have also had some feathers of its own. Fascinatingly, however, recent studies of various fossil skin samples from T. rex tummies, pelvises, necks, and tails have turned up nothing but scaly skin, indicating that T. rex itself may not have had feathers after all, or if it did, the feathers must have been present in small amounts, likely along its head or back, and not in the full, downy coats often depicted in artwork. It's unclear why exactly some tyrannosaurs might have had feathers while others didn't, though the leading theory is gigantism. Larger animals have a more difficult time expelling excess heat, so it's actually more of a hindrance for them to be covered in fluff, unless they live in colder climates. In practice, it's why wolves are furry and elephants aren't. But it's also why there was such a thing as woolly mammoths when the climate called for it. Tyrannosaurus spanned a range from northern Canada all the way down to the American Midwest, seemingly unchallenged. We have yet to find any predators large enough to have taken a run at T-Rex in its time and place. Perhaps once T-Rex became the top dog, it kept smaller competitors from reaching their potential, much as the large, bladed theropods had done to its ancestors. If there were any crafty schemers itching to take the T-Rex down a peg, they never got the chance. Tyrannosaurus rex's reign was cut short by an invader from another world. 65 million years ago, a six-mile-wide asteroid crashed into the Yucatan Peninsula in the Gulf of Mexico, resulting in a shockwave that traveled the planet. By the time the dust settled, 50% of life on Earth had been obliterated. Tyrannosaurus's stomping grounds in Laramidia were geographically just a little to the left of the impact site. The king of the dinosaurs 
was gone in an instant. Tyrannosaurus Rex first appeared 68 million years ago, so as a species, its run lasted 3 million years. It was the last ruler in a violent dynasty of rising and falling tyrants, and in some ways seemed to be the physical embodiment of all that primal savagery. Circumstance opened the doors to the kingdom, but Tyrannosaurus Rex became dominant predator of its time because it evolved a new way of killing than the kings of old. It was the herald of a more brutal future that never came to pass. With such an imposing and dramatic presence, both physically and in the scope of natural history, is it fitting or unjust that it was denied the throne by such apocalyptic means? One can't help but feel almost as if fate intervened, as if there was more to a story that simply couldn't be allowed to continue. Perhaps that's why Tyrannosaurus Rex has found a second life in the present. After the American Museum of Natural History unveiled Barnum Brown's frightful Goliath, American dinosaurs exploded in popularity. In the decades prior to Tyrannosaurus's discovery, O.C. Marsh and Edward Cope started a practice of flooding museums with any and every specimen they could find, primarily for selfish personal gain. Brown carried on this tradition, but in a way that seemed to be driven more by the love of the work than by fame and fortune. I mentioned at the top of the show that the Tyrannosaurus specimens at the American Museum of Natural History were collected by Barnum Brown, but it's not just those. The Triceratops, the Stegosaurus, virtually every fossil skeleton on display at the museum is one of Brown's finds. He's widely regarded as the most beloved paleontologist of all time, and he, in turn, loved that people love dinosaurs. He was something that we don't really have anymore, a celebrity paleontologist. Here's a quote from Mark Norell, chairman of the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Vertebrate Paleontology. He was such a popular and important guy during his lifetime that he really, really kind of was the museum. He would go out on the road to give lectures and people would flock around his trains when they came. He had his own CBS radio show each week in which he would talk about things. He was the dinosaur consultant for Walt Disney and Shostakovich on Fantasia. Brown went on to be curator for the museum's department of vertebrate paleontology, overseeing a collection of dinosaurs that largely represented the apotheosis of his life's work. He remained at his post for several decades, meticulously propping and prepping his dinosaurs in order to ensure that people everywhere would want to come and see them. To his credit, he more than succeeded. For most of the 1800s, 
England was the world's capital for dinosaur discovery. The sheer proliferation of American dinosaur specimens at the turn of the century, thanks to the zealousness of men like Marsh, Cope, and Brown, quickly left English museums in the dust. Iguanodon may have had spiked thumbs, but did it have a spiked face like Triceratops or a Thagomizer like the Stegosaurus? Sure, Megalosaurus was big, but Allosaurus was just as big, and Tyrannosaurus Rex, Tyrannosaurus was the clincher. It was the biggest of the baddest. For a nation that professes to reject kings and tyrants in its rhetoric, America has always had hard eyes for the tyrant lizard king. The nation has also been fairly imperialistic in its own outward conduct. American museums and paleontologists, ever competitive in the bone rush days, loved to tout Tyrannosaurus as the great American dinosaur. No collection was complete without it. We had it. We wanted the world to know we had it. And more than that, we wanted them to wish they had it. Nowhere was this more apparent than Hollywood. In Tyrannosaurus, the American film industry had found one of the first great villains of early cinema. In 1918, a stop-motion Tyrannosaurus graced the silver screen for the first time in The Ghost of Slumber Mountain, engaging in mortal combat with another well-known American gladiator, the Triceratops. Over the next few decades, Hollywood would grow into the world's foremost entertainment juggernaut, saturating screens at all corners of the globe. One might not ever have been to an American museum, but if they'd ever been to the picture show, they could probably still catch the dinosaur sequence in Fantasia or see King Kong rescue a maiden from the vile T-Rex. As the paleontological revolution rolled in during the 70s, we came to see dinosaurs as the rad great aunts and uncles of the birds and appreciate them for their grace as well as their ferocity. Even the mighty Tyrannosaurus was transformed from an upright Godzilla-esque brute into an animal. A very large, very powerful animal, but an animal nonetheless. With this understanding, our popular perceptions of Tyrannosaurus rex also changed. Now, a Tyrannosaurus was as likely to be an anti-hero as it was a villain. In 1993's Jurassic Park, the T-Rex exists as a sort of chaotic neutral element, both hindering and helping the protagonists. But by the time we get to 2015's Jurassic World, the Tyrannosaurus is the showstopper, the heroine that despite being absent from the majority of the film, shows up to turn the tide at the climactic moment. If you've seen the TV spots for the upcoming Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the T-Rex is in the previews as often as the top-billed cast. She's become as much a character as the film's heroes. Of the many 
newer dinosaurs that rival Tyrannosaurus in size? Several have been pitched to us as T-Rex's new big screen nemesis, and yet their time in the spotlight can hardly even be considered 15 minutes of fame. Pit the Tyrannosaurus against a bigger dinosaur in your movie, and audiences will root for the Rex every time. Maybe that's because, giant predator or not, you don't get to be a legend for being the second to accomplish something. Tyrannosaurus Rex was our first king of the dinosaurs, and it's still the champ. Those new dinosaurs may be big, but T-Rex is larger than life. Plus, the super intimidating name doesn't hurt. In 1892, during the height of the Bone Wars, Edward Cope discovered two partial vertebrae that he haphazardly dubbed Manospondylus gigas, or giant porous vertebra, in his rush to catalog the find as a new species. He then failed to ever revisit the bones since he was preoccupied with Spiting Marsh. The bones were stored and forgotten until the year 2000 when they were unearthed and determined to belong to Tyrannosaurus. Cope was actually the first person to discover the T-Rex. Thankfully, the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature has rules stating an animal can't be renamed if it's gone by a valid handle for over 50 years, which is a relief. If the Tyrant Lizard King had instead been named after the giant pores in its backbones, we can be pretty sure its reputation would have been over before it began. But it just goes to show that Tyrannosaurus Rex has been on this journey of dinosaur discovery with us for almost as long as we've been digging up fossils. Often, when scientists make groundbreaking discoveries about dinosaurs, like the fact that they had feathers, the public's first question is something like, did T-Rex have feathers? It's as much genuine curiosity as it is a reflection of what Tyrannosaurus has come to mean to us over the last 116 years. Death, it seems, was little more than an inconvenience for the king of all terrible lizards. The crown may have been stolen from Tyrannosaurus 65 million years ago, but it has resumed its throne in our lifetime, and we humans have proven that we'll gladly kneel at its feet. And if the most infamous extinction event of all time couldn't unseat the tyrant? What hope do any of these newer dinosaurs have? The theme song for Museum of Natural Mystery was created by Michael Guy Bowman. To discover more of his work, visit bowman.bandcamp.com.
www.palmcast.com. Museum of Natural Mystery is part of the Palmcast Network for Pomegranate Magazine, and thanks for bearing with me, everyone. Today's episode has been a long time coming, and truth be told, I was a little nervous to try and tackle it. Tyrannosaurus Rex is kind of a big deal. I knew I'd have to tell this story partly in the Mesozoic and partly over the last century, and that I'd have to condense hundreds of millions of years of geological time into roughly half an hour. So thanks for sticking it out, because I've almost certainly oversimplified things. But hey, I figured we were ready to pay our royal respects. I glossed over a lot of stuff I just couldn't fit into this episode, so if you want to learn more about Tyrannosaurus' journey to the top, I very much encourage you to check out the source links in the blog post that goes up on pommag.com, because they really expand on just about everything I talked about here. I'll also try and find some references for those other tyrannosaurs I mentioned, and some clips from those old movies like Ghost of Slumber Mountain, so you can check out The Birth of a Star. All that'll be up for you on pommag.com. That's P-O-M-E-M-A-G.com. I'm sure I goofed up some of the details in this one, so if you have questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions for future topics, give me a shout at natmysterypodcast at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at at natmysterycast. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving a review. It helps others find the show and it lets me know how I'm doing. I had originally planned on posting the season finale next month and doing a sort of spiritual successor to the tale of the T-Rex, but it turns out Palm is running some great cryptid-themed articles and pieces next month, and I'm going to hop on that train. So next time, we're going to take a quick detour into cryptid country, and then we'll circle on back to wrap things up. But that is truly it for today's show, everybody. So until then... I'm Emery Coolcats. Thanks for listening.